But I want to talk to you again about it anyway. I want to remind you about it anyway. I know that you know this, but I need to talk to you about it again. Who might start a conversation like that? Well, I definitely think that parents talking to their kids might use that approach. I'm going to talk to you now. I know you know this, but I want to talk to you about it again. I think parents do that, don't we? Or it might be a boss on the job. Maybe a boss on the job calls in an employee or maybe several employees and says the same sort of thing. I want to tell you about something I know. I've already talked to you about this before, but I've got to remind you about it again. It could be maybe a politician talking to his constituency. Maybe he's going to give them some instruction uh, or, or maybe just give him the political sales pitch, you know, uh, trying to win votes. But he's going to talk about things that he's already talked about. You know, really, if you listen to politicians, all of their stump speeches are always the same. <laughs> they don't really change very much about it. They just keep saying the same things over and over again. The point of that being, very often, in, in fact, extremely frequently, people repeat things. They talk about things that have already been talked about. They offer reminders. Well, actually, in the Bible, the inspired writers of the Scripture use that same approach. The idea is I want to talk to you about something I've already talked to you about. You know this, but I'm going to tell you again. We've been studying here in Sunday morning in our adult class here in the auditorium. We've been studying the book of Jude. And Jude says in Jude verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this. And so again, I know that you know that. I'm going to tell you again anyway. In, in 2 Peter, uh, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. And we could find other such references, but the idea is that the inspired writers saw a need to offer such reminders. And so, with that in mind, I'm going to start the sermon tonight by saying, I want to talk to you about something we've talked about before. I know you know this, but I think it's important for us to be reminded. And so I'll use that same sort of approach to talk about a subject that is, I think, extremely important. We have studied it. Before we need to study it again, we want to ask the question in our study tonight, what's wrong with instrumental music in worship? Obviously, we are in a distinct minority in the religious world because when we worship... We don't have instrumental music. There are a few other religious groups that are are, uh, like-minded, but not many. Most all use instrumental music. And it is so that this this is one of the things that people identify with Churches of Christ. Oh, you're that group that doesn't use music in worship, which is a a misstated uh, way to approach it. We do use music. We've just engaged in music, vocal music, singing. We don't use instrumental music in our worship to God. And so it is true that it it sort of uh, uniquely identifies us. But there's a reason for it. And we just want to review and be reminded why we don't use instrumental music in our worship. Thanks for being here tonight. We appreciate you all so very much on this Lord's Day evening for coming together to worship God, to study from His Word, to, to glorify Him. Thanks for being here to be a part of this. And to, the, to those of you who are visiting with us, thank you very much for being here. And please come again every time you have a chance to be here. Instrumental music. What's wrong with instrumental music? We can answer that 
almost with one sentence. What's wrong with it is that there's no authority in the New Testament for instrumental music in worship of God. Okay, that's the lesson. We're done. We can go home now. That answers it, doesn't it? Basically, that answers what's wrong with instrumental music in worship. There's no authority for it. We understand that we derive authority by way of direct command, approved example, or necessary inference. We talk about authority a lot. It's so incredibly important. If we were, if we were going to use instruments of music in New Testament worship to God, we would need to either be able to go to some place in the New Testament that says, do this, use instruments when you worship. We'd either have to have a direct commander statement or we would have to have an example of it being done, an approved example, an example that you could say was definitely approved by the apostles or other inspired people of the first century. We'd have to be able to see that. We have no such direct command or statement. We have no such example. The other way, the third way to establish authority is by way of what we call necessary inference. And so something would have to be implied. There'd have to be something in the scripture that implies approval for this sort of thing. Uh, and then we would infer from it that it's okay for us to do so and it's, it's not there. Uh, there's, there's nothing that would imply that God wants us to use instrumental music in our worship. And so the, the bottom line answer, we'll put the bottom line at the top of our chart. The bottom line answer to this question is there's no authority. That's what's wrong with instrumental music in worship. Here's all the verses in the New Testament that talk about music and worship to God. Matthew 26, verse 30, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Acts 16, 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Romans 15, verse 9, As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will sing with the Spirit, I will sing with the understanding also. Ephesians 5, 19, which Garrett read for us earlier, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3, 16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, I will sing... Excuse me, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And James 5.13, Is any among you merry? Let him sing psalms. Those are the, that's the totality of information in the New Testament about music, the kind of music that we're to use in this New Testament time. That's the totality of information in the New Testament about that. I think as you look at that, you see a distinct absence of any reference to instruments of music, okay? And so all of that just goes to what we're saying is that there just is no authority for the use of instruments. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that we actually know. It's not even a question. Nobody even debates this. Knowledgeable people don't even question this. We know that instruments of music were an innovation that came centuries after the beginning of the church. Church historians are in unanimous agreement about it. No, no one argues this point. 
We know that instruments of music were added in later. Let me give you several quotes. I'll do it as quickly as I can. Here's a church historian by the name of Dickinson. He says, We know that instruments performed an important function in the Hebrew temple service and in the ceremonies of the Greeks. At this point, however, there was a break made with all previous practice. And although the lyre and flute were sometimes employed by the Greek converts, as a general rule, the use of instruments in worship were condemned. Many of the fathers speaking of religious song make no mention of instruments. Others, like Clement of Alexandria and St. Chrysostom, refer to them only to denounce them. Now this, I think, is an interesting point to make. Notice he says, in the Hebrew temple service, it was, they did use instruments. But, but there was a break. He said, at this point, there was a break was made with previous practice. When the church began, and, and all of the Christians initially were converted Jews, right? Those Jews were familiar with the use of instrumental music in worship. They did it. And they stopped doing it when they became Christians. Isn't that interesting? Someone said, well, the reason they didn't use instruments is they didn't know anything about it. They didn't have any instruments. They, they, it was unavailable to them. That's not so. In fact, they had up to that point in time had been using instruments of music in worship under the Old Testament system, and they stopped it. Isn't that interesting? I don't think a lot of people, in, uh, when we're debating this point, a lot, a lot of people wouldn't even recognize that. Another historian named Qualvin says, singing, singing formed an essential part of the Christian worship, but it was in unison and without musical accompaniment. George A. Klingman, a historian, says, the earliest references to the use of the flute and the harp in the second century Well, that's too late, right? That's too late by a hundred years. The church began in the first century A.D., right? At Alexandria, Clement forbade the use of the flute on the ground that it was too worldly. He substituted the harp, which was a mistake, of course. Ambrose is said to have introduced instrumental music in the West in the fourth century. Now, these these are not scriptural references, obviously. These are statements from historians. But notice, they're all saying it was added in later. It didn't exist when the church first began. V.E. Howard, in What is the Church of Christ, says, In the Greek church, the organ never came into use, but after the 8th century, it became common in the Latin church. We would say the, the Catholic church. Not, however, without opposition from the side of the monks. Isn't that interesting? So, in the 8th century, it became common in the what we would refer to as the Catholic church, not, however, without opposition from the side of the monks. Even some of their own leaders suggested, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. This is not right. A man named Posey. This is, you've seen, I've used this quote before, and you're familiar with this. This is, my, this is actually my favorite of these secular quotes about instrumental music. Notice the title. Notice where this came from. A man named Posey writing about the Baptist church in the lower Mississippi Valley. Wait a minute. Lower Mississippi Valley, we we sort of in the lower Mississippi Valley, or at least we're not far from it, right? And so this is a history of who? This is a history of the Baptists in our own region. Now, if you don't read the quote yet, maybe you jumped ahead and read it already. If you were to talk to your Baptist friends and say, "Have they always you have have?" Instruments of music always been used in Baptist churches. Have, have people who call themselves Christians, have they always used instrumental music? I think 
the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of our religious friends who are Baptists would say, oh, sure, we've always had instruments of music. Sure, we've always had instrumental music. Now, wait a minute. So here's, here's a history of the Baptist church in the lower Mississippi Valley. I'll tell you, that's, that's not a really long history. Any Baptist church in the Mississippi, lower, lower Mississippi Valley would be 200 or less years old, right? This is recent history, actually, right? The Baptist church in the lower Mississippi Valley has only existed sometime within the last 200 years, for sure. Notice the quote. For years, the Baptists fought the introduction of instrumental music into the churches. Installation of the organ brought serious difficulty in many churches. The Baptists, in our own geographical area, argued about whether or not they should add instruments of music. Wait a minute. That clearly tells us that they weren't using it before, right? And, and it caused a lot of trouble in Baptist churches within the last 200 years when they tried to bring it in. Isn't that interesting? Surely this shows us that we know, what we know. We know for sure that instruments in music are an innovation that came centuries after the beginning of the church. You're aware of, and we have referenced before, you are aware of some really famous quotes by famous denominational leaders, and they have all historically spoken against the use of instrumental music in worship. Let me give you a few just real quickly. Here's John Calvin. You know the name John Calvin. The the Presbyterians of our day, and others, but uh, the Presbyterians would follow the teachings of John Calvin, What did Calvin say about this? He said, Musical instruments in the celebration of praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of other shadows of the law. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in the noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostles is far more pleasing. John Calvin did not approve of instrumental music. Here's Martin Luther. You know that Martin Luther, today's Lutherans, follow Martin Luther, wait a minute, before we go to that, what do the Presbyterians do today? They use instrumental music. John Calvin said they shouldn't. What do the Lutherans do today? They use instrumental music. What did Martin Luther say? He said an organ in the worship of God is an incident of Baal. It's like idolatry, he said. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, well, what do the Methodists do? Well, the Methodists use instrumental music. But what did John Wesley say? I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided that they are neither seen nor heard. That's, that's one of the famous quotes, isn't it? That's, it's really kind of clever. And I, you, can put, yeah, you can bring in the organ, just don't let me see it or hear it, is what John Wesley said. Charles Spurgeon, an English Baptist minister. Well, what do the Baptists do? Well, the Baptists use instrumental music. What did Charles Spurgeon, famous English preacher, uh, uh, Baptist preacher, he said, I'd as soon pray to God with machinery as to sing to God with machinery. It's all real clear, isn't it? And isn't, isn't it interesting that there's such unanim- unanimous opinion and view on this question? Even among people, we would differ with these people on probably a host of subjects, but they agree on this question of using um, musical instruments in worship. All right, let's spend just a few minutes now. We'll, we'll wrap this up. 
I'm, I'm talking to you about things we've talked about before. I want to remind you, though, I know you know this. That's how we started out, and, and, that's, and we're going to do that again here. Let's talk about how we would address some objections that are raised. Whenever we get into a discussion with people, and again, people, people think we are sort of oddly weird, unique in the fact that we don't use instruments of music. And so when they find that out, they're going to, they're going to start throwing out some objections. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And there's some that always come up. And, and I think as the people of God, we need to be quick and ready to answer these kinds of objections. Someone says, the Bible doesn't say not to. You've heard that, haven't you? The Bible doesn't say not to use instrumental music. Well, that's true, I guess. I guess it is true. We already looked at the, all the verses in the New Testament that talk about music and worship in New Testament worship. They all say singing. It is, in fact, true that there's no place where we could go and find a verse that says, Thou shalt not use instrumental music. There's no such verse. We're, we agree about that, of course. But if you stop to think about it, this argument is so flawed, isn't it? You don't have to say not to. You just when you tell when God tells us what to do, it excludes other things. And and there's all kinds of examples that everyday kind of examples that we could offer. Uh, so one of you dads uh, tells his son after services tonight. Go over to the go over to the convenience store over there, uh, and and it's, it's, my car's running low on oil. Go over to the convenience store over there and and buy me a quart of oil. Right. So the kid goes over there, and he comes back, and he's also bought a uh, a candy bar and a coke. Wait a minute, I didn't I didn't say you could buy a candy bar and a coke. And the kid says, Well, you didn't say not to, right? That wouldn't work, would it? That would never work. You don't have to. When you say what you want, when you when you specify what you want, you exclude other things, and that's the same way it is in Scripture. You know, the the classic example is when in Genesis chapter six, verse fourteen, God told Noah, "Build thee an ark of gopher wood." Now we're not even exactly sure what gopher wood was. A lot of people think it was maybe something similar to our to our tree called a cypress tree. We don't know. It doesn't even matter. Noah knew what it was. And when God said, build thee an, oak of, uh, build thee an ark of gopher wood, that excluded all other woods. Uh, if, if Noah had used oak or pine or cherry, if he'd used any other kind of wood, we'd say, man, Noah, you're, you're going out on a limb there. God told you what he wanted. You better stick with what he said. I think everybody would understand that. And so God didn't tell Noah, don't use oak, don't use pine, don't use cherry. He didn't have to. When he said what he wanted, that was enough. And the same thing is true in regards to this argument. You know, I, I like, whenever I have a chance to talk to someone about this, I like to talk about the Lord's Supper. What do we use on the Lord's Supper? Well, we use unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. And everybody agrees about that pretty much. I mean, there's very little argument about that. You know what God didn't say? God did not say, don't use milk and chocolate cake on the Lord's table. He didn't say that. He didn't say not to, but we, no one would even dream to do such a thing. 
because we all understand the very logical concept of when something is specified, other things are excluded. So this, the Bible doesn't say not to argue. That, that is just weak and flawed, isn't it? Someone says they used instruments, they used musical instruments in the Old Testament. And of course the answer to that is yes, we know that they did. There's no argument. We're not arguing that. You can go to all kinds of passages like maybe Psalm 43 verse 4. Plenty of places like that where we read about them using harps and lyres and so forth. Musical instruments in Old Testament times. But the fact of the matter is that we know that, we're, that we don't find our authority for our present worship to God by going to the Old Testament. They did some other things in the Old Testament too. They, they offered animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. They burned incense in the Old Testament. They were required to avoid certain kinds of meat in the Old Testament. We don't do that, right? Because that's not our authority today. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it says the old, time, the old law was a schoolmaster to bring us to, to faith in Christ. We're no longer under that schoolmaster. And so the easy answer to this objection is true. They did use them, but that's not our authority in the New Testament time. Someone says, but you listen to instrumental music in your home. I had a neighbor. The reason I include this one, I had a neighbor once who made this objection to me. Yeah. Because he would hear me out in my garage working and I'd have a radio playing. As I worked in the garage, I'd have the radio playing. Apparently, I played it loud enough that he could hear it at his house. And so when, the, when we got into a discussion of this sort of thing, he said, Well, I know you, use it, you listen to music at your house. And, of course, I do. We do. That's not an uncommon thing. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, that... We do lots of things in our homes that we don't do when we come together to worship God. Uh, you know, we, we eat common meals, we, we play games together. We do lots of things in our homes that are not authorized for us to do when we come together to worship God. Just let me take just a little side step here. I want to make an I want you to think about this, and I don't know if you would all agree with my conclusion on this. I want to tell you that if we're singing praises to God at home, we shouldn't use instruments there either, okay? Now, not everybody agrees about that, but, but here's, here's what I think is the right conclusion on it. When we're praising God, He's told us how He wants to be praised. We praise Him with singing. And so if we're at home and we want to offer our praise to God in song... We ought to sing. We ought to do it that way. All right? By the way, among those eight verses that we looked at earlier, not all of those were involved in corporate worship. Not all of those statements are about what was done in corporate worship. If it, if it is singing, if it is music that's intended to offer praise to God, it ought to be done with vocal music and no, music, and no instrumental accompaniment. Someone said, well, it's just for fun. It's just for entertainment. Well, if it's just for our fun and entertainment, then let's don't use those songs. Those, those songs have uh, important sacred messages. You know, we're offering praise and devotion to God. So if it's just for fun, don't use those songs. If it's just for our own entertainment, don't use those songs. It's sort of a sacrilege to use those songs in that way. If we intend the singing to be praise to God, which it should be, then do it the way he said in the New Testament. 
just sing, don't use instruments of music. Now, I don't know, I, I know that there's some Christians who don't agree with that, but I, I, don't, I don't see any other way around that conclusion. Our worship to God with music should be singing and not instruments. Someone says, but the instrument is merely an aid to our singing. Uh, they, they would argue that the, the, the instrument, the organ or the piano or whatever, is no different than a songbook or a tuning fork. Nobody uses a tuning fork anymore. But, you know, you got your, I see our guys, you know, you got your smartphone up here and you listen to the tone so that you can start the song correctly on key. Those are aids. Those are aids that help us do what? Those are aids that help us to just sing. The end result of using such aids is that we sing. We don't do anything else. We just sing. But when you use an instrument, you've, changed the, you've actually changed the act. Now it's not just singing. It's singing and playing. It's different, right? It's not just an aid. It actually changes the activity and it changes it to an unauthorized activity. Uh, it's not just an aid. By the way, here's a kind of a good argument to bring up if, if some of your denominational friends want to quibble with you about this. You might ask them that if when they go to their church services and as the services are being conducted, does it ever happen that the organ player is just playing the organ? Nobody's singing. It's an instrumental solo. Does that ever happen? And most of them are going to have to admit, yeah, that does sometimes happen. Sometimes it's just playing. It's not even singing. It certainly can't be aiding your singing if all you're doing is, in fact, playing. It is not an aid. It's an addition. And we need to be able to explain that, and they need to be able to understand it. I think if people were honest, this probably would be their principal objection. I just like it. I just love to hear that organ music when I go to church. In fact, I don't feel like I've been to church if, if the organ is not playing. It just doesn't seem right to me. I like it. I like the instrumental music. Well, the, the question would be, who are we trying to please here? We're trying to please ourselves. We're trying to please God. Right? That's, that's the bottom line. We, we, you know, and, and Paul made that argument in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. If I'm trying to please men, I'm, then I'm not the servant of God. We're not here to please ourselves or others. We're here to please God. But in addressing this objection, I just like it. You know, I think if we took a survey of all of us here, I think we'd get a, a, a fair percentage of people who say, I like it too. Uh, you know, if you ever watch any denominational worship services on TV or on the video, if you get on and watch YouTube of... of some of these, some of these contemporary Christian rock kind of things, that's pretty appealing, you know, to the ear. And so you, it's not congregational singing. You got a band up here. You got a performance group up here on the stage, and they got their guitars and they got their drums and they got the, I mean, they got the, and they got fog machines and strobe lights and it's like a rock concert. But I'm gonna tell you, it's got a pretty good sound to it. I like it. It doesn't matter whether I like it or not, right? Who are we trying to please here? We're trying to please God. So this argument, I just like it, doesn't work. Finally, here's, here's the, I think, really the only true technical argument that is ever made trying to justify the use of instrumental music in worship. 
And they will argue that the Greek word for sing originally meant to sing with instrumental accompaniment. Now, what they're talking about there is the Greek word solo. And if you wanted to spell that with English letters, it would be P-S-A-L-L-O, solo. It's found in that in the verse that Garrett read for us earlier in Ephesians chapter 5. The word solo is in there. Look at that just for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 or excuse me 5:19 Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In this King James translation, the word solo is translated with the phrase making melody. And so the argument is that in the Greek, that word suggested singing with instrumental accompaniment. Specifically, the sort of the plucking or, or twanging of a chord. Maybe like a lyre or a, or a harp or, or in our day a guitar. Maybe even a piano, you know, a piano has strings inside, maybe the striking of a piano wire, uh, and it makes a song, uh, it makes a sound, rather. And that that's in, that's in the word solo. That's the argument that's offered. There's a lot wrong with that argument. The first thing that's wrong with that argument is that no Greek authority has ever translated it that way. I, I mean, you, you can call up, at this point, we've got dozens of, English translations of the Greek New Testament, and I challenge you to find even one of the dozens, I challenge you to find even one that translates solo as to sing with musical accompaniment. It doesn't, it's, no Greek authority accepts that. So, you know, these objectors that we have to answer to, they think they've got us over, they, they've really got us stumped here because they've got Greek on their side. You know, the Greek says this. Well, the fact of the matter is that people who really know Greek don't think so. And they've never translated that way in any English translation of the Bible that I'm familiar with. So that, that ought to mean something, right? Here's another argument. Remember what we said about the unanimous agreement among church historians that the early Christians did not use instrumental accompaniment? Now, wait a minute. What was their language? What was the language that they used? What was the language that they were familiar with? They knew the Greek, right? It, for many of them, it was their native tongue. They knew what the word solo meant for sure. They didn't use instruments. All church historian agrees that they, that, that they didn't use instruments. If solo strongly means sing with instrumental accompaniment... Why did those people back in the first century who knew the Greek way better than anybody today did, why didn't they play instruments when they worshiped God in New Testament first century churches if they knew the language and it meant that they would have? You see the point? Finally, it's also argued that that verse, Ephesians 5.19, tells us where the melody is to be made. Singing, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's, that's where that's where the plucking of the strings takes place. Uh, you know, you know. Sometimes we even use the expression that tugs on my heartstrings. Well, that's where this twanging of the strings is to take place, is in our heart. The making melody is done in the heart.
And then finally, it's also argued that if this is a command, then it ought then it has been argued. There's some quibbling about, made about this argument, but if this is instructing us to sing and play, then we all need to be singing and playing. If this is an instruction to include playing along with singing, then we couldn't just assign that duty to one or two, uh, and then the rest of us just join in vocally. This would be a requirement for us all. There's just a lot wrong with this argument. But, but very often we get people who think they've really got us stumped because they're going to throw the Greek on us. The Greek doesn't support the idea of using instrumental music in New Testament worship. What's wrong with instrumental music in worship? Everything. Just basically everything. There's no authority for it. As we said, we sort of, we sort of did the bottom line first. The bottom line is there's just no authority for it. And whether we like it or don't like it, doesn't matter. It is what has God authorized us. He's authorized us to sing. I know you know this. We've talked about this before. I think we need to be reminded about it. You know, sad to say, even among some churches of Christ in this day, this view is being challenged. This understanding of the scriptures is being challenged. And it is sad to say, but churches of Christ are bringing in the instrument in some places And I think part of the reason why is because we haven't taught on it enough and we haven't offered these necessary reminders frequently enough. And so a new generation has come up and they're not grounded in these very simple Bible truths. And that's a sad thing. And that's always going to lead to error. And we've got to prevent it. Thanks for your good attention while we had to say. We're going to sing. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And in the singing of this song... We're going to ask everybody here, make sure your life is right with God. If you've never obeyed the gospel, that simple gospel plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, if you've never done that, but you understand your need to do that, we would urge you to make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, not been faithful to the Lord, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.